Revelation 20, starting at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither they received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Randy, would you? Amen. I want you to visualize that moment early in the gospel story when the angel Gabriel was sent to a young woman in Nazareth named Mary. She was a good and faithful Jewish woman. Mary was well acquainted with the Old Testament promises of a coming Messiah. Right? There would be this anointed one of God who would come and establish a righteous kingdom. Mary was, after all, a distant descendant of King David. Hadn't God promised David that a ruler would come from his family? God had told David back in 2 Samuel 7 that uh, this man will come and I will be his father and he will be my son and through him your house and your kingdom and your throne will be established forever. And so when the angel Gabriel came and visited Mary, surprised her, he tells her that she, although a virgin, would bear a son and would fulfill that role of being the promised Messiah. Here is what the angel said to Mary in Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. 
For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The messianic expectation of the Jewish people was that the Messiah would come and would establish God's kingdom on earth. And we see throughout the Gospels, that was their expectation. They they were not wrong about that. They were just wrong about the timing of it. In his first coming, the Lord Jesus proclaimed the Gospel, displayed the righteousness of God, and insisted that his disciples put their trust in him and put their hope in him. And all those who obeyed the gospel and placed their trust in the Lord Jesus were given and made citizens of his kingdom. In his second coming, the Lord Jesus will return as king, the sovereign leader of his loyal subjects, and he will establish this long-awaited kingdom of righteousness on earth. It will be the fulfillment of the very promise that the angel made to Mary. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. When we come to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10 tells us about that coming kingdom. Specifically, it tells us that Jesus will return to earth. He will establish a kingdom. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. King Jesus will reign with his saints for that thousand years. And at the end of that thousand year reign, there will be a brief but futile attempt to depose King Jesus. The text can be fairly easily divided into three sections. John actually gives us some chronological clues for these sections so there is what happens before the kingdom in verses one through three what happens during the kingdom in verses four through six and what happens after the kingdom in verses seven through ten let's look at what happens before the kingdom rule verses one through three we'll read those verses again in just a moment but i want to remind you that the chapter divisions in Scripture are not inspired parts of the text. John, as he wrote this down, did not stop in the middle of this story and say, that's the end of chapter 19, here's the beginning of chapter 20. Right? His, His vision flows right through. And so last week at the end of Revelation 19, we saw the return of the Lord Jesus. If you remember the description Eyes aflame, many crowns on his head, wearing a a blood-stained robe, coming as king of kings and lord of lords to, to wage war against the wicked armies of the earth. What we've seen in Revelation so far is during that seven year tribulation period that wickedness is led by this unholy trio of Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Well, Back in Revelation 19, we saw last week that Jesus, with nothing but his word, defeats the armies of the earth. In verse 20, the Antichrist and the false prophet were taken and thrown into the lake of fire. But that leaves one more enemy 
that still has to be dealt with, right? Revelation 20 is just the continuation of that same vision as the final enemy is dealt with. So look at verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Satan, the historic enemy of righteousness, here is condemned to confinement for a thousand years. John sees, he says, a mighty angel carrying with him, seemingly in one hand, a key to a bottomless pit, and in the other, a great chain. And so not only is Satan cast into that pit, but he's also restrained with this great chain to, to hold him there. He's, he's really restrained in three ways. He's, he's thrown into the confinement of the pit. He's, he's bound by the chain holding them there. John says there is a seal covering the pit that prohibits anything from exiting from it. Now, we don't get all the details here, but it seems like it's pretty clear that this place that Satan has thrown is different from the place that the Antichrist and false prophet were condemned to in chapter 19. They were thrown into the lake of fire, but Satan's confinement for a thousand years is the bottomless pit, or literally in Greek, it's the abyss. This is not the final place of judgment. So, the very fact that Satan is cast into this temporary place of judgment tells us that the purpose and plan of God is for that confinement to be temporary. Specifically, John tells us, it's for a thousand years. Note how the apostle describes Satan in verse 2. The dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. It sounds a whole lot to me like condemning a, a prisoner and reading his indictment, including a list of all the aliases, right? The, the dragon, also known as the serpent, also known as the devil, also known as Satan. John's telling us several things in this description. First off, by saying this is the dragon, he's telling us that this, this evil creature that he's seeing in the vision is the very same one that he's seen throughout Revelation. Back in chapter 12, when he got a vision of this great red dragon that had drawn away a third part of heaven into rebellion. Twelve times in the book of Revelation, the dragon is mentioned. And so John is making it clear, this vision is about that creature that I've been seeing in this vision. Second, the words devil and Satan are describing the same Character in just two different languages. Devil is the Greek word, means adversary or slanderer or accuser or enemy. It's where we actually get our word diabolical from in English. Satan is the Hebrew equivalent of that word. This dragon is a liar. He's a slanderer. He is the horrific enemy of God and his people. But that's not all John says, and I'm so thankful that he does this. John also calls him that old serpent. It's as if John is reaching through the page and telling his readers, look, this, 
this dragon that I've been seeing, that I've been talking to you about, whether you know him by the Greek word, the devil, or by the older Hebrew word, Satan, he is actually much older than that. This dragon of revelation at the end of the Bible is the very same serpent that slithered into the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. He came in tempting Adam and Eve to disobey God. His goal then and his goal now is to destroy all righteousness and goodness and and spread lies and lead the world into rebellion just like he had rebelled against the holy God. But Satan cannot thwart the plan of God. By doing it this way, John's wanting us to look like the the big picture of the Bible, the sort of the, the overarching story of history. The Lord God had created all things. He made man. He he placed him on earth. He told Adam, you are to have dominion, right? This world, it's to be a, a domain over the earth. But the purpose of God was for Adam to oversee this kingdom of earth all the time while being over this kingdom of earth, being under the authority of God. Satan successfully led Adam to reject God's authority, to rebel against the Lord God who had made him. And the result is that all of humanity was plunged into sin and shame. But now to correct that rebellion, God sent his own son, Jesus, born into humanity, born human, the only one to live a perfect and obedient life. Now we think about how he did that for our good, right? He lived the life that we should have lived. He he died taking the wrath of God in our place so that all who believe in him could be saved, no longer condemned to hell for our sinful rebellion, but granted eternal life with him. But y'all, that's not the end of the story. He's also going to return and establish this kingdom. Do you get this? He's going to establish a domain over all the earth where he rules over the earth as the perfect man under the authority of the Father. Does that sound familiar? Your salvation through Jesus is a part of the story of the restoration of what was lost in the fall, but it is not the whole story. As much as Genesis 3 gives us the story of paradise lost, Revelation 20 is the beginning of the story of paradise regained. And step one is ejecting that subtle snake, that wicked deceiver, the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil and Satan, removing him from the world and reestablishing a domain of righteousness on the earth. Satan will be bound then means he is not bound now. Of course, he's limited by the restrictions that the Lord God has placed on him, much like in the story of the account of Job's life. Satan could do no more than God allowed him to do what he was permitted to do, but he is not bound or restricted entirely now. The apostle Peter calls him the roaring lion who is is walking about, pacing, seeking whom he might devour. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, the the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Paul even calls him the God of this world. 
Or when Satan tempted the Lord Jesus, one of the temptations he offered was, look at the kingdoms of this world. I can give you all of that if you just worship me. That was not an empty offer. It was a chance to have the kingdoms without the cross. And Jesus refused and he endured the cross and now he's going to come and take the kingdoms too. Verse 3 says Satan is cast into the abyss and he is shut up. He is locked up. A seal placed to secure that prison. By deceiving Eve, Satan had deceived the nations. But now John says he will deceive the nations no more until a thousand years is fulfilled and after that he will be loosed a little season or a short time. Now I can only imagine the Apostle John's reaction to this would be sort of similar to what you or I would react to this, right? If you've got Satan locked away, why would you ever let him out? Well, there is a reason and we'll talk about that when we get to what happens after the kingdom. But for now, before there's an earthly kingdom, there is the expulsion and confinement of Satan. Just know that even a thousand years of imprisonment does not change Satan's rebellious and hateful heart. Now let's look at what happens during the kingdom, verses four through six. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that has part In the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Sort of without apology, the Apostle John presents Jesus in his vision as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, right? That's the title Jesus is wearing back in 19 verse 16. He's ruling over the earth. He's he's ruling according to the promise from Jerusalem, from the throne of David. But John also tells us during the millennial reign that in verse 4, he says, I saw a lot of thrones and a lot of people sitting on those thrones. Judgment being given to them. The consistent promise of Scripture is that the Lord's people will reign with him. Let me give you some references. Daniel 7, verse 27, says that the kingdom and dominion will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, even as he rules. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, telling believers not to bring lawsuits against each other because Quote, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? In 2 Timothy 2.12, he encouraged Timothy in suffering by saying, if we suffer, we will also reign with him. 
In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus told his apostles, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne in glory, you also will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Or you can just, in this book, go back to chapter 2. Jesus spoke to the church at Thyatira and promised them in verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my word into the end, to him I will give power or authority over the nations. Or in Revelation 5, there is that song of the redeemed singing praises to Christ. And part of their song in chapter 5, verse 10 is, you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now, how does that happen exactly? I mean, if, if believers are ruling and reigning with Christ, over whom are they ruling and reigning? Well, it's possible that the destruction of the wicked armies of the earth in chapter 19 does not encompass the destruction of every wicked person of the earth. Also, over the course of this thousand-year reign of Christ, there are children born, there are generations of people, and while this is a kingdom of righteousness, it's not suggesting humanity is perfect. At the end of a thousand years, we're going to see Satan is let loose and he'll find quite a few unbelieving people to form into an army. So the millennial reign is the rule of the perfect king, but the dominion includes imperfect servants. This is evident at the end when the, there is rebellion again. It's evident from the beginning when in verse 4, the saints are given authority. It says to judge. The idea is to judge disputes. There's going to be disputes in this millennial kingdom. John also sees in the vision, in addition to the ones on the thrones, he says that there's the martyrs of the tribulation period. In verse 4, he says they were executed for both what they would do and what they would not do. What they did to infuriate the Antichrist was witness for Jesus and the word of God. He says what they refused to do, which equally infuriated him, was that they would not receive his mark or worship his image. Even though they had been executed by being beheaded, John says, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They were alive, he says. And then adds in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. That is, the resurrection of the saints to rule with Christ is the first resurrection. It happens at the beginning of the reign of Jesus. Listen to verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that has part of the first resurrection on such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So the first resurrection is the bodily resurrection of the saints who have died and they are raised from the dead to reign with Jesus, their beloved King. But here's the astounding part of what John's saying and I want you to see it. To call something the first resurrection is to, at the very least, imply that there is a second, right? That there is something else coming after it. But John does not say anything here about a second resurrection. Those saints who trusted in Jesus, they died. They're raised to reign with him. That's the first resurrection. 
But he says that those who rejected and rebelled against Jesus when they died, instead of a second resurrection, John describes a second death. So there is this, there is this resurrection of the wicked dead at the end of the millennial reign. It's not called the second resurrection. It's called the second death. And we'll have to deal with it next time. But for now, I just want you to see that John, just going in chronological order, records it immediately after our text this morning. Our our next text will be in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Just look at them. I saw a great white throne and and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Right? You're seeing this resurrection, the second one. And they were judged, every man, according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what scripture tells us is that those who repent of their sins and trust Jesus for salvation, we say that they're, they're born again. They're, they're given new life. They're given eternal life. But all wicked humanity do, that does not turn to faith in Jesus, they die in their sins only to find themselves ultimately faced with The second death, eternal death, forever cast into the lake of fire, suffering such torment that they would wish that they could die. You see this contrast that John's making? Well, there's the first resurrection, there's the second death. And so in verse 6, blessed and holy is he that has part of the first resurrection. On such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse six is actually a beatitude. It's a promise of blessing, blessed, but not only blessed, also holy. The second death, the wrath of God on sin will not touch the saints of God. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's paid the penalty for our sin. We are given access to God through him. That's the idea in verse 6 of being called priests of God and of Christ. In the Old Testament, the people would have to come to a priest in order to have the priest offer the sacrifice to God. There had to be this go-between. But we don't need some human priest to be a go-between for us. Through Christ, we have access with God. He is our go-between. He is God. We have direct access. Now what we might want from our text this morning is for John to now give us a a long description of the beauty of the reign of King Jesus. What will this 1,000 year earthly reign look like? Well, he just doesn't give us that. That doesn't mean though that we're left to wonder. There are plenty of other scriptures that point to the wonders of this 1,000 year reign of Christ. Let me just give you some picture of it. In Isaiah 11, 
It tells us that the Lord will reign in wisdom and understanding. He's not going to judge simply by what he sees nor by what he hears, but with righteousness and because he knows all things. And that righteous rule of Christ will expand beyond humanity because Isaiah 11 says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat and the calf with the young lion. Nursing children can play next to a cobra's hole, even reach down into the snake den without fear. And on that day, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like waters covering the sea. Isaiah 19 tells us the Lord who rules over Israel from David's throne will also be the Lord of glory over all people. Even the ancient enemies of God's people like Egypt and Assyria. He says of them, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Micah 4 verses 2 and 3 describes it in this way. It says, many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they will beat their their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What will the millennial reign of Christ be like? Well, it will be a time of peaceful and and prosperity. It's going to be the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. A blessing to all the Gentile nations who worship King Jesus. It's going to be a time where Satan is bound, where the saints will rule. It's a time where the curse of the fall is at least relieved. It's a time of long life and and new generations born into the world. It is a time under the complete and sovereign authority of King Jesus. But verses 7 through 10 tells us what happens after that thousand-year kingdom rule. Verse 7, you can hear that that chronological cue, right? When the thousand years are expired... Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and and encompassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Just by the the natural reading of the text, we should hardly be surprised at what happens at the end of this thousand-year reign of Christ, right? Verses 1 through 3, John sort of anticipated this. As he described the binding of Satan, but specified in verse 2, it's going to be for a thousand years. And in verse 3, after that thousand years, he, he has to be let loose for a, a little season, a short time. After the thousand year reign of Christ with his saints on earth, there is a short, desperate, and doomed grasp for power once more. 
Now the people who are born during that thousand years, we noted before, they're still born with a sinful nature. They are born in need of salvation through faith in Jesus. No doubt, just like today, many will put on an outer facade of faith in him. But it's evident when Satan is let loose from his imprisonment, he's not going to find any difficulty recruiting millions of people willing to join his rebellion against King Jesus. Verse 8 actually says, the number of them is as the sand of the sea. John identifies these rebels as coming from Gog and Magog. This is where I'm supposed to tell you where that is exactly. If you want to know, when I was growing up, it was always China and Russia, but it kind of changes based on what's happening in the worldscape. That's just a too simplistic way of viewing it. The reference, like much of Revelation, is a reference to Old Testament prophecy, this time specifically Ezekiel's chapter 38 and 39. But instead of describing two nations, it seems likely that Gog is describing a ruler and Magog describing the nation or the people. And I say that because geographically, John's pretty specific that these people are coming from everywhere. You can look at verse 8, the four quarters of the earth. John says Satan finds willing participants from throughout the world, including rulers and nations willing to fight against the rule of King Jesus to attempt to dethrone the Son of God. Now we get a brief description of the battle that's not a battle. (laughs) He says they, they went up on the breadth of the earth. It's more likely describing a plain or flat ground where they assembled and from there he says they compassed or encompassed, they surround the beloved city, Jerusalem. But the final battle is no battle. Here's the description of the entire battle at the end of verse 9. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It is only then, at the end of that millennial reign of Christ, that Satan is ultimately and finally dealt with. Now if you follow it with John said, he's, he's been loosed from his prison in the abyss He's gathered together another army of the earth and he sees it destroyed with fire from heaven. And now in verse 10, he is cast into the lake of fire with the Antichrist and the false prophet to be tormented day and night. By the way, look at verse 10. Let me ask you a question. How long ago was it that the Antichrist and false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire? It's a thousand years, right? But John describes it as where the Antichrist, where the beast and the false prophet are. They haven't been destroyed in a thousand years. There's no annihilation in in hell that's taught in the Bible. It is taught as being eternal torment, punishment forever. Before we conclude, I asked earlier why, right? If Satan can be chained in the prison of the abyss for a thousand years... Why let him out? John doesn't tell us. He doesn't give us that answer. But there are some lessons that it teaches us. First off, given a thousand years to cool off, the burning hatred of Satan is still red hot. 
And if you have any question about just how wicked and just how hateful he is, this should be sufficient answer. Second, not only does it give you an idea of how wicked Satan is, it gives us a better grasp on just how wicked and depraved humanity is. Get get what's happened here. You can remove Satan from the earth, establish a kingdom for Jesus, have an environment of absolute peace and complete prosperity, and still wicked humanity is more than ready to rebel against God. Think of it this way. We already know what the next section of Revelation reveals. It's called the great white throne judgment where the unbelieving masses are are, are brought forward, judged, cast into the lake of fire forever. Just in case you're going to read that and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, shouldn't God give them a chance? He did. The millennial reign of Christ is vindication of God's wrath in advance. What what greater chance would you want? Well, how about we remove Satan from the world? How about we establish a righteous and just kingdom? How about there's, there's no war, only peace. There's no shortage, only abundance. We put benevolent King Jesus on the throne and allow you to come learn about him directly from him. Would that be enough? According to our text, not in a thousand years would that be enough. If you've attempted to fool yourself into thinking, well, I would come to Jesus in faith if only my life was a little bit better. Let the Apostle John assure you, no, you wouldn't. It's not Satan keeping you from Jesus. It's not a a lack of some material blessing you want in your life that's keeping you from Jesus. It's the fact that in your heart, you want your sin more than you want him. There's really no excuse. There's no defense for not being appalled by our own sin, nor will there be any reason for surprise when scripture tells you up front the consequence of, of rebelling against the command of King Jesus. There is judgment coming. But believers, rest assured, verse 6, blessed and holy is he that has part of the first resurrection on such the second death has no power. As much as the justice of God is assured on those who continue in rebellion against him, The blessing of God is assured for all those who believe in Jesus. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God in the place of all who believe in him so that the wrath of God will not touch you. Instead, you'll reign with King Jesus until he finally puts down the final rebellion against his rule. He'll come and he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. And when he's done, he will judge the wicked world and he will establish in chapter 21 a new heaven and a new earth, an eternal state of blessedness with him forever.